0: Hello everyone, how do I practice the art of self-compassion as a secular person? This is by Noah Rashita, March 22nd, 2017. Noah Rashita is the author, he, he is a Buddhist teacher, lay minister and author as well as the host of the podcast Secular Buddhism. He teaches mindfulness and Buddhist philosophy online and in workshops all around the world. He works with others to make the world a better place as he studies, embodies, and teaches the fundamentals of Buddhist philosophy and integrating Buddhist teachings with modern science, humanism, and humor. He lives in Playa del Carmen, Mexico with his wife and three kids. So, here you're going to understand more of my secular Buddhism why are we so harsh on ourselves have you ever noticed how we tend to be nicer the further out we go from our inner circle we're not as mean to a stranger as we are to a family member but we're ruthless to ourselves in this episode i'll explore the idea of self-pity self-criticism self-compassion i will share three steps you can take to help you to be kinder to the person who needs it most you transcript of the podcast episode hello you're listening to the secular buddhism podcast this is episode number 37 i am your host noah rashita today i'm talking about the art of self-compassion why are we so harsh on ourselves i ask again have you ever noticed how it tends to be nicer the further out we go from our inner circle i ask again for the third time why are we so harsh on ourselves for the third time Have you ever noticed how we tend to be nice the further out we go from our inner circle? We're more harsh on a friend than we are a stranger, more harsh on a family member than we are on a friend, and ultimately, we're just ruthless on ourselves, and when it comes to treating ourselves, the craziest part is that the person giving the beating is also the one taking the beating. Why are we so critical of ourselves? In this episode, I want to explore the idea of self-pity versus self-compassion. What is self-compassion? How do we practice it? But before I jump into that, I want to remind you that this podcast is made possible by the Foundation for Mindful Living, a 501c3 nonprofit whose mission is to make the world a better place by teaching people to live more mindfully. Now, this is clearly Noah talking, but if I just keep talking, that means how he thinks is exactly how I think. If I interject, that means I'm adding a little more or maybe saying that may not be me as much so far he's saying what i'm fully thinking so i'm gonna keep reading and that's my way of telling you i think like him here we go this is noah rashida's podcast donation offering this is not me doing it i'm just reading what he's saying about his podcast every podcast listener donate just two dollars a month Foundation goes mindfulness retreats and workshops all over the country, perhaps the world, for free. Imagine that, people being able to attend a workshop or a retreat to learn about mindfulness. That's possible. All you have to do is visit secularbuddhism.com and click on the donate button at the top of the page. And, and one more reminder the Dalai Lama has said, Do not try to use what you learn from Buddhism to be a Buddhist. Use it to be a better, whatever you already are. I agree. If you're new to secular Buddhism, which I am, or you're interested in learning more, which I am, you can listen to the first five episodes of the podcast in order. I will in the future. They are a summary of all of these concepts. Also, you can check out my book, Secular Buddhism Easter Thought for Western Minds, available as a paperback on Amazon, ebook on Kindle, iBook on iTunes, audiobook on audible.com. And for more information and links to those book versions, just visit secularbuddhism.com. Okay, with all that out of the way, now let's jump into this week's topic self-compassion so first how do we define compassion in general everyone has some level of compassion excluding conditions of psychopathy or something like that but think of the images of suffering animals on tv i remember those commercials with sarah McLachlan playing in the background you know generally we all feel a sense of compassion when we see stuff like that compassion when a family member or a friend or even a stranger is experiencing an instance of suffering so why do we feel that I think we're hardwired from an evolutionary standpoint to feel this way because we depend on the compassion of others for our very survival. No other creature on the planet requires the care and attention that a young human being requires to survive. Wow. So far, he is saying my natural thought patterns. I'm just keep reading. In Buddhism, this innate desire to lessen the suffering of others is often referred to as our Buddha nature. Ooh, I have a Buddha nature? I have a secular Buddha nature, nice. Or the awakened state, ooh, I have that, nice. It's a natural state, sweet. And over time, it's our concepts and ideas and beliefs that can desensitize us from this natural state. So part of the spiritual practice of someone studying Buddhism is to increase that state of compassion, to include all living beings, including perhaps especially ourselves. There's a phrase or an expression that comes from a Tibetan Buddhist prayer that says, May all beings have happiness in the cause of happiness. May they be free from suffering and the cause of suffering. That idea or that prayer is written as practice of increasing compassion. Another idea that comes from the Buddhist understanding of compassion is that everyone deserves it. It doesn't need to be quantified or qualified. You know, think about a dog that gets hit by a car and you see it. You don't tend to judge the circumstances before determining if the compassion is deserved. You just feel it. You feel sorry for it. You try to minimize suffering. You don't say, well, you shouldn't have tried to cross the road, see what you get. You know, we wouldn't do something like that. Why is that we do that when it comes to human beings? You know, I've been robbed. Oh, well, you shouldn't have been in that part of town. Or, you know, the horrible story of someone being raped and it's like, well, you shouldn't have been dressed that way. And so many other similar judgments, and these are horrible because compassion doesn't require any kind of judgment or qualification and sure there may be reasons to analyze the situation to be able to use wisdom as a tool to avoid suffering like obeying a sign that says warning there are sharks in the water so maybe you won't go into it once a person has gone to the water they've been attacked or bit by a shark and experiencing suffering the compassion that we can feel to help ease and minimize suffering shouldn't be entangled in the the, uh, analysis of whether or not this person should have been in the water or not it's just not necessary at this point compassion is only concerned about one thing to lessen the suffering that's being experienced and there's no need for judgment in that process so I mentioned this at the start it's easy to feel natural compassion the further out we go from ourselves so stranger then friend and family ultimately self so as a practice we want to increase our compassion for others we should start with ourselves because if I'm capable of deep compassion for myself imagine that expanding out exponentially as you go out from there Compassion for a friend might be harder than compassion for family. And compassion for a stranger might be even harder than compassion for a friend. So I, I think we often think about working on compassion, developing compassion, but we would start with thinking outside of that ring. What can I do for someone else first? And this, and if this was a formula when you're imagining these things and the further the ring goes out from you, the easier it is to experience compassion. let's say that multiplies. I don't know, any number by two, then imagine the amount of work and effort it would take if we're starting from the outside of that ring in. If I can get, let's say, the level of compassion from one to 10 and I experience for another, maybe it's a, let's say, an 8 out of 10 and then it diminishes. 8 out of 10 for a stranger, maybe 6 out of 10 for a friend, 4 out of 10 for a family when it gets to me, it's like 1 or 2 out of 10. So if I'm trying to increase the outer ring by working with others and I get that to go up one notch and then you use that same formula to go in, you're not making a big dent or a big increase in the compassion you have for yourself. But if you're going to do this backwards, if I was to take the compassion for myself, if it was on a two out of a 10 scale, and I was able to increase that to, I don't know, six out of 10 or something, imagine what that does to the number going out from there to family, then friends, and then strangers. It's a lot like the turning of a wheel on a bicycle. You get the pedals that are attached to one set of, you know, one wheel, and that is usually connected with the chain to gears, and the gears get, can shift and then t- and they turn. Ultimately, the actual wheel is spinning. So if you're thinking the key to getting this wheel is to spin faster to work on the wheel itself, imagine the bicycle is kind of suspended in the air you're spinning the wheel. You could spin it faster. Or you could start with the smallest of all those things, which is the actual, the little wheel of the gear where the pedals are. What if you make that bigger? Then what would that do to the ultimate speed of the tire? It would make it a lot faster, but anyway, you get the idea. The idea here is instead of starting from the outside in, what if we're started from the inside out developing compassion? So this is self-compassion we're talking about now. So we wanna start with this form of self-compassion. Now, if you've ever flown on an airplane, you'll recall that during the safety procedure, usually at the beginning before you take off, they'll talk about how if there's an emergency, these masks come out on the top. They always say, put yours on first and then help someone else. Now I was thinking about this on a recent flight with my son sitting next to me and I was thinking, man, I would, I would want him to be safe first. You know, The first thing, because I care about him more than I care about myself. and then I realized, well, if only I a matter of seconds that I were to pass up, I can guarantee he will, because he can't reach out he won't know what to do. And I thought, is it selfish of me to want to put the mask on first? And it may seem so at first, but if our goal is to dramatically increase our compassion toward others by focusing on ourselves first, then it wouldn't be selfish. Like the airplane mask, I put mine on first because of how much I care for my son sitting next to me. So on one hand we have this idea of self-pity it, and this seems to be a default setting for a lot of us and on the other hand we have self-compassion one arises out of fear perhaps the fear of not being like or the fear of being disliked. because remember we're hardwired to belong and the other one arises out of love so self-pity arises out of fear self-compassion arises out of love and there's an element of wisdom that i want to put out here in buddhism we're always teaching about interdependence And we continually go back to this idea that all things have causes and conditions. Things enter, are The flower exists because of the sun and the clouds and the rain and the soil and and so on. And suffering fits this understanding. Suffering is also interdependent. In the last podcast episode, I talked about this, how we can learn to look deeply at our suffering and to understand the causes and conditions. The absence of compassion is causes and conditions too. So if compassion is a natural state that we experience, you can see this at a very young age, then we can look into what are the causes and conditions that may be preventing us from experiencing compassion. Again, aside from psychopathy, which is also a cause or a condition that would prevent compassion from arising naturally, perhaps there are other causes and conditions. For example, prejudice. If I hold a racist idea or a concept, could that be the cause or the condition that prevents compassion to arise naturally towards a specific group? You bet. And you can and you spend time looking at how you see the world and you start noticing things like this perhaps you could ask yourself what ideas or beliefs do i hold that may be preventing me from feeling natural compassion toward others maybe a specific group how do we actually practice self-compassion i want to mention three things three steps to assist with this process and step one is you practice being kind to yourself by imagining you're someone else now I'll explain that and step two is looking deeply at suffering, and step three is developing mindfulness or awareness around suffering. So, starting with step one, practice being kind to yourself by managing or someone else. What does that mean? Well, I've mentioned already in our society, as much easier to be kind of to family and friends than it is to be kind to ourselves. Fortunately, we don't seem to treat others half as badly as we treat ourselves. I'm sure that we've all done this, have you ever said to yourself, you idiot, or you're such an idiot, what are some of the things that we say to ourselves that we would never, ever say to someone else, think about that for a moment, think about some of the things that you say to yourself, Mother Teresa used to say, it's easy to love the people far away. It's not always easy to love those close to us. It's easy to give a cup of rice to relieve hunger and to relieve the loneliness and pain of someone unloved in our home. Bring love into your home for this is where our love for each other must start. I really like that. And I would go further and add that when we learn to love ourselves, that's when we can truly learn to love others. But it has to start with ourselves. And this is where self-compassion can get in. So as an example of being kind of just recently for me, my business has been experiencing some complications and difficulties for quite some time a couple years ago i had a big contract with walmart that fell through and i've been struggling to recover from that ever since and then it happened again about a year ago with at&t wire similar deal they ordered all these products put us all put us in all their stores and then decided never mind we don't want to sell these anymore and they take it all back and a lot of these big real retailers are notorious for this doing business with box big box retail can be really difficult for a small company I've paid the price of that twice it's been such a significant price that i've had to pay to take all that inventory back to scale down manufacturing that has put my company on the precipice of failure in the last few weeks i've been dealing with a few other setbacks that have kicked in that are like adding you know it's like the straw on the camel's back and i'm in a very serious predicament now where i'm in a complete uncertainty about the future of my company and it's been stressful and it's been difficult and i've caught myself on occasions how i talk to myself about it thinking man you failed what have you done And so I'm experiencing firsthand at various occasions in the last few weeks and the last few days, the sense of self-pity, you know, oh, poor me, or self-criticism, you know. You're such an idiot. Why did you ever do business with these guys? You knew, you knew this could have happened again after it happened once. And then I start to remember this concept of self-compassion. I started to imagine somebody I would care for, you know, in this case, my brother. I have a twin brother, and he's my best friend. And I was imagining, what if this was his company? Started this seven years ago. And this is his baby, and he's built this. And he's telling me what's happening at work, and imagining him telling me the same thing changed the entire dynamic. At this point, I'm thinking, well, geez, I'm in the same society here this is happening. How can I help you? Don't be hard on yourself. You didn't know this was going to happen with these big re- retailers. And it was so fascinating to see how much easier it was for me to feel kindness and compassion by imagining myself to be someone else. And I was thinking how harsh I could be on myself when I was just in this experience all by myself. This is one of the techniques we can do if you're going to, if you're going through something, whether it be, I don't know, you can think of so many examples, getting out of a bad relationship or running a red light and then coming down so hard on yourself for what you have done. Imagine that in the moment someone you really care about. Now they're telling me what just happened, but it's them. And notice how quickly that tone, how quickly that compassion can arise naturally, and then flip it back to you and say, well, geez, why can't I throw that in for myself? And what you should experience is the opportunity in that moment to actually feel compassion for yourself. I felt it myself, you know, in these past few weeks, in these past few days, this form of compassion, thinking, you know, when I'm going through is a difficult thing, and I'm gonna do my best to get through it. And at the same time, I'm going to adapt and move on. And all of these things come to mind, but the harshness was gone, the criticism was gone, and self-kindness counters a tendency we have to tear ourselves down. I don't know why it's so easy to tear ourselves down, but we do. So this form of practice being kind to yourself by imagining someone else can make a difference. So give that a try. Step two in this process is to look deeply at the suffering. And this is the topic of last week's podcast episode. So in summary, I mean, you can go back and look to that episode to get a much more in-depth understanding of step two. But essentially here is understanding that suffering is universal and the difficulties will arise and is universal. When right on in the podcast talked about this, I mentioned the story of the bear. You're hiking in the woods and someone warns you on this trail somebody's jumping out in a bear costume and scaring people. Now that you know, you can, you, can, you can continue your journey, knowing that when that happens, you'll still be starved. But how much more quickly can you recover from it? Because you realize, I knew this was going to happen, and it's happening to everyone else on this trail. Everyone experiences hardships in life. My tendency is the one thing. Why is this happening to me? As, a, as if I was the only person that were experiencing the potential and imminent collapse of my company or my business or losing a job or any other trial that you may go through in life. As hard as it is to see this at the time, it's important to understand that you're not alone. Everybody experiences these hardships. Another part of this is understanding interdependence. And I think this is essential to the understanding of self-compassion. Because remember looking, learning to look deeply, looking deeply at an object. The flower, as an example, if you learn to look deeply. You'll see that the flower is made up of all non-flower elements, the sun, and the earth, and the everything else. But we're no different. You are made up of all non-you elements, starting with your parents, your culture, your society, your beliefs, your, this doesn't end. It goes on and on and on. But you are intervening with everything that is not you. And so you are intervening with everything and everyone else. And I know that may sound crazy at first, but if you really look deeply and you see, that's what you see interdependence. You can't see something without seeing everything. This is a concept I really love about Buddhism. You cannot see something without seeing everything. And if you're not seeing everything you're not seeing something with the right eyes and i think we fall in this constant trap of thinking things are supposed to go a certain way life is supposed to be a certain way and then when they don't we think something's wrong and this causes us to not only suffer but then we feel alone in our suffering why is this happening to me and remember we're all part of this shared experience when we look deeply what we start to see is that everybody experiences suffering and sure the circumstances are different the degree of pain could be different But the basic experience of human suffering is the same. It's universal. While self-pity may say, poor me, self-compassion is saying I'm not the only one going through something difficult. And it could even take it a step further. It could say, well, now that I know what this is like, I can help somebody else who's going through this. So those are things to think about with step two. Looking to, learning to look deeply is understanding that when you look at something, it's not just that. There are always layers of complexity because all things have causes and conditions. So in the same way that looking at a flower and only seeing the flower is a narrow way of seeing, looking at the flower and seeing all the elements that allow the flower to be what it is that's looking deeply. And we can do that when we look at ourselves, when we look at our own suffering. So that leads us to step three, which is developing mindfulness or awareness around suffering. Remember, mindfulness is just awareness, it's the acute awareness of our moment to moment experience with complete equanimity and balance. What does that mean? It means that we're completely aware of our thoughts, our emotions, and our sensations without this need to claim to them or to resist them awareness of impermanence reminds me of the expression this too shall pass remember that it's easy to be kind to the non-permanent me there's the me that thinks that's constantly thinking oh this is going to be this way what's going to happen because it we tend to want to experience our moment to moment experiences of life with a sense of permanence attached to it like oh shit this is always going to be this way or oh damn i'll never do that again we think in terms of permanence and and the reality is, there's no permanence to be found here. So, for instance, rather than thinking, "Well, fuck, I failed," if this company collapses, I'm a ass backwards failure. I'm realizing I'm not a failure. I'm simply experiencing failure at something right now. This too shall pass. Can you see the difference in those two approaches? It's, it's dangerous when we get caught up in adding permanence to the way that we see things. And mindfulness prevents us from over-identifying with our thoughts, with our emotions. This understanding that I'm not angry, I'm experiencing anger. I do feel pissed. You know, I'm not a fucking failure. I just failed at something. At this or at that, being a failure is a mere concept. If you think about it, you know, what does it mean to fail? Failure is always relative to something. There's no such thing as failure without it referencing something, right? I failed to practice my guitar. I failed to meditate. I failed to continue holding a job. Whatever it is, it's relative to something. Fail is always relative. Because there's an absolute in there. You cannot be a failure. You can't. Sure, you can fail at something. I failed a lot of things. We all do, but it's certainly not failures because that's impossible. Well, here's where I slightly disagree. Because I like what he's saying overall. Um, I do think that there is a such thing called permanence. I think that permanence is more about the legacy that you leave on Earth. To me, that's the only real permanence. Because, like with his podcast, people will still listen to his podcast when Noah dies. So that's the only permanence that is on Earth. You may not physically be here, but your words, your podcast, how you treated people, What kind of person were you? All that is the only premise we have. And I disagree with him when he says you cannot be a failure. There's a difference between the majority of people failed at things. And then there are pure evil beings out here. I think the only true failures are pure evil folks you are a failure because that's what you keep choosing to consume for yourself so and when he talked about with compassion um regarding people who have been um in situations where there was a sign but they still went anyway i think i agree with bishop Yvette funder when she says watch your compassion. And compassion doesn't always have to be nice. Don't allow yourself to be taken advantage of if you can help it. Don't be a doormat if you can help it. Don't be a pushover if you can help it. Don't be a don't be gullible if you can help Don't bullshit yourself if you can help it. Don't let other people bullshit you if you can help it. So when Bishop E. Fethlander says, watch your compassion, compassion does have limitations and boundaries. You don't have to fully feel it if somebody did some dumbass shit and they touch the stove and they're adults, right? And they know they shouldn't do it but they keep doing it. After all, it's okay to scale back your compassion. Like, no, I'm going to give it to somebody who actually is in need of my compassion. Because I've come to the point where I'm I'm selective in my compassion. I know some people say it's harsh, but why give your compassion to people who purposely bullshit themselves and they have all the tools and all the ways that are constructive to live better and do better and they never try to do better? Why waste your compassion on these motherfuckers? When in reality, I can have compassion for people who are going through hell and it's truly not their fault. So compassion is boundaries. I believe compassion is good, just don't waste it. Don't give it to people who abuse your compassion. That's like people who waste their compassion are those who live a sedentary lifestyle, gaining unnecessary weight, eating badly and necessary, unnecessarily, and drinking fluids that contribute to weight gain, like milkshakes, so for the most part, I agree with him, I do think that also, he didn't talk enough about, okay, how do you bounce back from all those business mishaps, it's like, okay, what did you learn, did you learn that, okay, maybe I should have started smaller, and then work your way up, it's kind of, it's what I'm going through right now. My books will be published by June 15th. That is my goal. It could be sooner than that. And I'm okay with health, healthy flexibility. However, I also understand that right now I'm making sure that Fiverr gets all my stuff done book editing, book cover, book design, my audiobook, my hardcover, my paperback, and my audiobook. But I'm still consulting with a veteran writer that I know from Clubhouse. Clubhouse, and now I'm going to be speaking with that person about what's the best way to publish. I've done all the other stuff. Now, how do we help me uh, be a light to the world and self profitable what's the best avenue so i had to learn that because i don't have all the answers to publishing i need to speak with a person who helps people publish books all the time so mindfulness can help us understand that through the understanding of of impermanence or the nature of change things always change so if you're in a continued state of becoming how do you fail well, that's true for most people, but don't leave out people who choose to be failures. There's a difference between failing at something and being a failure, okay? One is people like myself, and then there's people like Adolf Hitler. It's hard to call him a person. It's hard to say he's, you know, he's people because inhuman and inhumane, go figure, so... Then there's just toxic people that never want to stop being toxic. They're failures too. I just have to say it. Um, it's not over, you know. For some people, it actually is because there are people who are death sentences to themselves and to others, literal and metaphorical. It's never over because change is the only thing that's always happened. So there's no permanence there. Uh, for most people, that's true. Then the toxic people, you know, the people you have to cut off because they don't want to stop their fuckery, of course. And then there's Joseph Stalin-type folks. So it's always over for people like them. People in quotations, I would say. When you experience shifts to light, experience self-compassion, which you'll find is that you not only transform your own life, starts to transform the lives of everyone we interact with because when you become a better whatever you already are it allows everyone else around you to become a better whatever they already are too you see how that works so rather than starting with the outer ring, you know what can i do for others what can i do for friends what can i do for family like bring it in bring it to the core of what can i do for me how can i develop compassion directed at me and you know self-compassion of course you should always ask the questions what can i do for others friends and family as long as you knowing what you should be doing for yourself and doing it, just don't be, just always be a well-rounded, well-balanced adjusted person. Always be a well-unified person. Well, try your best to, because perfection is not the goal, but wholeness is a goal that is attainable and obtainable. Um, I learned this concept. That it's very much okay to compassionately put yourself first that doesn't mean negate the existence of other people and I also want to make it clear that it's okay to ask how you can be compassionate about others as long as you embody self-compassion for yourself because you cannot truly be a delight to others if you're a train wreck to yourself. I wanna make a note about this because self-compassion should not be about trying to make our pain going away. It's not like we're trying to minimize the experience that we're going through. We're not trying to manipulate the experience that we're having. It makes self compassion a new form of resistance, and that inevitably makes things worse. I'm talking about self compassion as the art of becoming more comfortable with discomfort. Self compassion doesn't take away the suffering I'm experiencing, it creates space for it. It allows it to come sit at the table, and be like, Yeah, I'm going through this and I'm experiencing that. Well, let's sit with it. You know, come join us at the table. Anger or sadness, let's have. Anquanimity here and that's what self-compassion can allow for it starts internally so maybe what you can do is try this exercise this week we hear that voice of self-criticism or self-pity which you will we all do try to imagine for a moment someone that you really care about a parent a sibling a spouse a child anyone imagine that they are the ones going through whatever you're going through whatever you just did notice how the tone of that voice that eternal voice changes when you're directing it towards someone you already care for and then when you feel that compassion arise naturally, turn it and channel it towards yourself. Remember, if there's the you that you think you are, then there's the, then there's the you that you can serve that. And remember, if there's the you that you think you are, and there's the you that can observe that you, then you can certainly create a space for the compassionate you to emphasize with the you that's experiencing the suffering. I mean, you can certainly create a space for the compassion that you to emphasize with the you that's experiencing the suffering. Now, if that's kind of hard to understand, then I'll leave you with this quote by Alan Watts that you can think about for the rest of the week. He says, there's once a man who said, though so it seems that I know that I know, what I'd really like to see is the I, which knows me when I know that I know that I know. So there you go. Think about that. Mull over that for a week. But before I wrap up this week's episode, I do want to share one last thing. Leo Tolstoy says, that everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing ourselves. So, yes, I live a self-compassionate life. And um, here's to sum up my secularism. My affirmation of humanism is a statement of principles drafted by Paul Kurtz, but I'm gonna make it applicable to myself. I am committed to the application of reason and science to the understanding of the universe and to the solving of human problems. I deplore efforts to denigrate human intelligence to seek to explain the world on supernatural terms and to look outside nature for salvation. I believe that scientific discovery and technology can contribute to the betterment of human life. I believe in an open and pluralistic society that democracy is the best guarantee of protecting human rights from authoritarian elites and repressive majorities. I am committed to the principle of the separation of church and state. I cultivate the arts of negotiation and compromise as a means of... Resolving differences and achieving mutual understanding. Today I am I am committed to the principle of the separation of church and state. I cultivate the arts of negotiation and compromises as means of resolving differences and achieving mutual understanding. I am concerned with securing justice and fairness in society and with eliminating discrimination and and intolerance. I believe supporting those who are disadvantaged and those who are labeled handicapped by our society, so that so that they'll be able to help themselves. We, I attempt to transcend divisive parochial loyalties based on race, religion, gender, nationality, creed, class, sexual orientation, or ethnicity, and strive to work together for the common good of humanity. I want to protect and enhance the earth to preserve it for future generations and to avoid inflicting needless suffering on other species. I believe in enjoying life here and now and in developing our creative talents I believe in enjoying life here and now and in developing my creative talents to my fullest. I believe in the cultivation of moral excellence. I respect the right to privacy. Mature adults should be allowed to fulfill their aspirations, to express their sexual preferences, to exercise reproductive freedom, to have access to comprehensive and informed healthcare, to die with dignity. I believe in the common moral decencies, altruism, integrity, honesty, truthfulness, responsibility. Humanistic ethics is amenable to critical rational guidance. There are normative standards that we discover together. Moral principles are tested by their consequences. Um, I am deeply concerned with the moral education of our children. I want to nourish reason and compassion. I am engaged by the arts, no less than by the sciences. I am a citizen of the universe and I am excited by discoveries still to be made in the cosmos. I am skeptical of untested claims to knowledge, and I am open to novel ideas and seek new departures in my thinking. I affirm humanism as a realistic alternative to theologies of despair and ideologies of violence, and as a source of rich personal significance and genuine satisfaction in the service to others. I believe in optimism rather than pessimism. Hope rather than despair, learning in the place of dogma, truth instead of ignorance, joy rather than guilt or sin, tolerance in the place of fear, love instead of hatred, compassion over selfishness, beauty instead of ugliness and reason rather than blind faith and rationality. I believe in the fullest realization of the best and noblest that we are capable of as human beings. So... When I was talking about the sin, the faith, the dogma, and the supernatural terms look outside of nature for salvation, I want to clarify something. Often the religious definitions of those things means that there is Scriptural bigotry. If you are into the Holy Trinity, then somehow otherism causes temporal hell on earth that feels everlasting. But then you have scripture saying, these people that are seen as other are facing eternal otherism or, ever, or endless damnation, condemnation. So I've always struggled with those things because I don't think that any creator would make it easy for the very people that they created to bear the brunt of hate because of what they, what other people don't understand about them or what other people misunderstand about them. I think that all the scriptural bigotries are human products, not divine products. So I am so honored that I get to end this episode in this beautiful way. Now I feel victorious because my inner beauty is glorious. I am a secular human, and I am proud to be a human secularity.